for Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, it's not uncommon to hear the so-called Tuskegee syphilis study invoked in conversations about Black communities' reluctance to interact with the medical establishment. But that's not the whole story. What I think is occurring now is we're using hesitancy as an excuse instead of access as a reality. Dr. Ruben Warren from the National Center for Bioethics and Research and Healthcare at Tuskegee University joins me to talk about the so-called study's legacy in the context of the pandemic. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. In the mid-20th century, U.S. government health agencies told hundreds of black men that would help them cure their so-called bad blood. In fact, the participants in the officially named Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male never got the care they needed. During the pandemic, the incident has been invoked as a reason for vaccine hesitancy in the Black community. But Dr. Reuben Warren from Tuskegee University says it's not that simple. He's with me now for more. Dr. Warren, thanks for talking with me. I'm wondering if, if we can start just by kind of setting the scene here. You know, our audience has likely heard of the Tuskegee syphilis study, but walk me through what actually happened. First and foremost, the actual name of the so-called study was the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male in Macon County, Alabama. That was its original name. And there are a couple of points that are very noteworthy. First, Tuskegee, in the context of the history of Tuskegee Institute, the tremendous history. So anything associated with Tuskegee, particularly as it relates to Black people, was a positive. So that's, that's why they inserted Tuskegee. Uh, secondly, untreated syphilis, which simply means that they had no intentions of ever treating the disease. Untreated syphilis. Third point is in the Negro male, which suggests that syphilis was disproportionately among the Negro male. But syphilis at that time was rampant throughout the country. And fourth, uh, Macon County. Macon County is where the city uh, is located, but it was far broader uh, than just in Tuskegee. And as you probably know, 
the federal government developed a tracking system, and I would call that a surveillance system, that followed the men wherever they went throughout the country to be sure they were not treated, even when penicillin was developed to effectively treat syphilis. Those are, I think, important caveats, but kind of set me up what actually was happening here. I mean, how many men were being tracked? What was done or, or not done to them and, and by whom? We really don't know exactly, but I can tell you what we think and what was reported. Between 1932 and 1972, uh, there was a so-called study. There was a non-therapeutic study of syphilis among Black men in Macon County, Alabama. Now, prior to that, the Rosenwald Foundation and the federal government uh, joined in to really develop a treatment program to treat syphilis in selected counties, in selected parts of the country. And Tuskegee, Macon County was one of those selected. But that was a time of, of tremendous economic strife in this country around the Depression times. So the Rosenwald Foundation pulled out and said after a couple of years, I think they started in 30 and by 32, they said, we can't longer support this program. We don't have the, the finances. So it went from a treatment program in 1932, the federal government decided to continue it as a non-therapeutic program to follow them in over time to see the impact of uh, syphilis on organ systems. And by 1936, they knew the impact of syphilis on nervous system, reproductive system, and all organ systems. So after 36, they knew all they needed to know. The question is, why did they continue the study after 1936? And what was the original intent? That is yet to be fully explained. The Rosenwald Foundation. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that is? That was uh, the old Sears. That was that conglomerate, that financial group. That was what we now know as Sears and Roebuck. That was the same group. It was at the foundation that was uh, supported by Sears. And Rosenwald really was trying to establish educational programs for Black uh, children throughout the country, throughout the South particularly. So that was an educational effort. And they just expanded that to, quote unquote, do a health endeavor that lasted for 40 years. And when did the problems with this program, as, as you call it, become apparent? And what were those issues? In the late 60s, a epidemiologist, African-American, Bill Jenkins, noted that there was something unethical about that study. And he tried to, re- he tried to report at CDC, was an employee at CDC, really didn't get any traction. But in 1972, the uh, study was exposed, New York Times, and that happened in 1972. And that's when it became a exposed national issue, a national tragedy. Well, sure. And, and you mentioned one part of that tragedy, the fact that the medical community knew that penicillin was a treatment for syphilis and, and that was not offered these individuals. That was several years after the study had begun, late 40s, early 50s. But when they found out that penicillin was an effective treatment, they were intentional about denying the men treatment. There were supposedly 623 men in the study 400 supposedly had syphilis. The others were um, control group. But there was such fluidity between those who had the disease and those who didn't. We're really not sure how concrete those numbers were. But what we do know that there was never 
a written protocol to engage in the research. So how can you have a legitimate scientific enterprise called research with no written protocols? Nothing was ever written that designed, that, that structured how research should be conducted, even though there were many articles published that resulted from uh, that study. And so walk me through how we get from the point of this study, if we want to call it that, being exposed in the 70s to, you know, the next few decades and kind of how this study came to be shorthand for, you know, the way that Black individuals are are taken advantage of, mistreated by the medical community. And one of the men in the study read in the paper that there was a study going on in Tuskegee and Black men were not were in it. He went to uh, attorney Fred Gray Sr., a practicing Black attorney, and said to, to attorney Gray, I read something in the New York Times, and I think I'm in that study. Can you help me? And attorney Gray said, I think I can. And that's how the litigation, that's how the suit began. Fred Gray Sr., attorney Fred Gray, I actually sued the federal government on behalf of the men. So that's how it actually got uh, uh, the kind of visibility, national visibility that it eventually got. And it was a settlement out of court because it was Fred Gray against the United States. But he fought the good fight and there was a settlement as a result of the lawsuit. I even understand there was additional work done in the 90s by by you and others to try to get the federal government to kind of more completely reckon with what what happened here. In 1995, I was working as associate director for minority health at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And a colleague called me, uh, Dr. Ralph Katz, uh, and said he was at a conference on ethics. And he called and they were discussing about the so-called syphilis study. And he called and said, Ruben, do you know if the federal government ever apologized for the U.S. Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee? And I said, no, I don't know. But I asked the director of CDC and he didn't know. So that provided an opportunity to pursue it. And uh, that next year in 96, we gathered a group of ethicists, scientists, public health officials, community engagement folks, and other uh, government officials, and met at Tuskegee to discuss the issue and concluded that the man needed an apology and also beyond an apology, some other kinds of uh, recognition of what had gone wrong. And so we thought about who should apologize. And so CDC had been and given authority to manage part of the, the medical care that the men received as a part of the, uh, the settlement. And but at that time, the director of CDC was Dr. David Satcher, an African-American physician from Alabama. And it would seem to be absurd to ask an African-American man to apologize for something that happened to Black people in Alabama that he had no authority or control over So we got back in conversation and said, no, the apology should come from the highest official in the United States. At that time, it was President uh, William Jefferson Clinton. And therefore, we we asked that that apology uh, be made by the president. And in 1997, there was a White House ceremony where the president of the United States apologized to the men, to the 
Black community nationally and to the nation for that atrocity that they call the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead, talking today with Dr. Reuben Warren from Tuskegee University about how the legacy of the so-called Tuskegee Syphilis Study is and isn't playing out during the pandemic. I want to take us from that point in the 90s when, you know, President Clinton publicly apologizes um, for what happened. Talk to me about the ways in which this study was being received and talked about, at least to your experience in the Black community when it came to their relationship with the medical establishment. Two things. In addition to the apology, what the the, uh, Tuskegee Legacy Committee, and that's what we called ourselves, we also asked for the president to establish a bioethics center at Tuskegee to prevent the kinds of things from happening again, which he did. And that's really the National Bioethics Center where I am right now. But the whole notion of what did the black community know about it, I tend to characterize it as institutional memory. We may not have known exactly what happened, but it was clear that something happened in Tuskegee that was not right. To say the black community didn't know exactly, that may be true, but many knew that something went wrong. And quite frankly, the, some folks at Tuskegee may not have known uh, the tragedy of it, but they knew something was going on. Otherwise, it could not have been promoted. But it was disguised as an effort to improve the health of, of black people. And who could deny that? That's going on as we speak today. I don't know if this has been your experience, but I certainly have heard Tuskegee, you know, thrown around as shorthand for the reason why communities of color might, say, be hesitant to get vaccinated for COVID-19. And it's kind of the stand in for what are really centuries of mistreatment. What do you make of that kind of kind of shorthanding? Is that that's been and promoted around the country. And what I would argue is that it is the uh, metaphor for uh, unfair treatment in the health arena for the black community. So while that may be true, it is not the only issue. So what I would argue is that not only is it our history of, of health disparities, of disproportionate burdens of health and health care, but also of current circumstances. So when you say Tuskegee, what that really symbolizes is a greater issue, not either or, but both and. So if there were not continued atrocities in health and health care for the black community, then the notion of, of Tuskegee would probably not have the kind of uh, energy that it currently has. So to say that the, the hesitancy is solely due to Tuskegee is an error. And in fact, most times that you hear it, the folks who are saying it have not been to Tuskegee, nor have they called Tuskegee. So when you hear the word Tuskegee experiment, no, they did not talk to Tuskegee because the Tuskegee experiment was the Tuskegee Airmen. When you hear the word Tuskegee syphilis study, they have not talked to Tuskegee because we transcended from using that uh, misnomer to the U.S. Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee. So when you hear those emphasis for Tuskegee, just know very few of them have come or called to really get the truth. Talk to me a little bit about these these kinds of current conditions, um, reasons that go beyond this situation, why, you know, communities of color still have uh, lots of mistrust of the medical establishment. Right. A uh, couple of instances. In 1985, 
the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services published a landmark document called the Secretary's Task Force Report on Black and Minority Health. And in that document, it chronicled seven leading causes of excess deaths. Excess deaths are the disproportionate, unnecessary, preventable deaths experienced by the Black population if you use the non-Hispanic white population as a standard. There were 60,000 excess deaths reported in 1985. Those excess deaths included heart disease and stroke, cancer, diabetes, infant mortality, and unintentional and intentional injuries. Now, there were 60,000 preventable deaths. Now, in 2005, that report was replicated, and those 60,000 excess deaths among African-Americans had increased to 83,000 excess deaths. And so all the research, all the funding, all the quote-unquote commitment to eliminate health disparities, it went from 60,000 in 1985 to 83,000 by 2005. So those are current challenges that continue to plague uh, black and brown communities. So maybe it's just there's this understanding that outcomes are worse for communities of color, you know, black individuals in, in particular, and that it's just that kind of awareness that the outcomes are worse that makes people hesitant to engage with, with the medical community? Well, part of it, and again, as time unfolds, we'll be clearer. What I think is occurring now is we're using hesitancy as an excuse instead of access as a reality. So there are people who are legitimately hesitant for a variety of reasons. But the question now is for those who are willing and able do we have fair access? And the data are clear, we do not. So let's not get hesitancy or reluctance confused with access. The primary issue right now is access. For those who are willing and wanting to be vaccinated, can they get it in, in a reasonable and equitable manner? Right now, they cannot. It, it does seem to me that some of the conversations around hesitancy almost get into this point of um, blaming communities of color for being hesitant or for being, you know, skeptical. Has that been your perception too? And, and what do we do with that? It's blaming the victim. And I think that they have to first recognize that the reluctance, and it's published in, in the literature, that reluctance is not denial. Being hesitant or being reluctant does not mean I deny it. And Black people are just as willing to be vaccinated as others. But there's hesitancy, and we have to acknowledge and, and, and respond to those hesitancies. It's an excuse to say they're hesitant, so therefore we can explain disproportionate burden by hesitancy, the disproportionate lack of vaccination by hesitancy. I'm not denying that it exists, but the major issue right now is access. For those who want and are willing to be uh, vaccinated, can they get it? Is it readily available? And I would suggest that it is not. And there, so there are two major considerations that I think we all must consider and deal with. One is under what conditions do I want to be vaccinated? And what assurances do I have, uh, both short-term and long-term? And if I don't have health insurance, then uh, that, that's a problem. So assurances for me who has health insurance versus someone who does not is a major issue. 
if we, we have some, some positive reports on short-term immediate response to vaccinations, but what about the long-term? What about six months from now? What about a year from now? What about two years from now? Are you concerned or that this pandemic and how it's really been experienced in, in the black community is simply going to be another piece of evidence about how you know the medical establishment doesn't reach them well, that they're not well served by it? I think we have the opportunity to shift the paradigm, acknowledge errors of the past and put concrete measures in place to shift that to something more positive. Trust is what's argued and trust is what is asked of the black community. I would argue that trustworthiness precedes trust. Prove yourself trustworthy research community. Prove yourself trustworthy government. Prove yourself trustworthy uh, scientists and then trust will come. But don't just say I was vaccinated and therefore you should be. No, I was vaccinated because I think it's best for me and the community that I serve. Now you have the authority and the responsibility to decide for yourself. One principle of, of, of ethics is autonomy. Have the ability to decide what is best for you. To try to convince me is paternalism. And we owe people more than to be paternalistic. So if given the right information from a trustworthy source, I think people will make the best decision for themselves. I think the decision will be a positive one. Dr. Reuben Warren leads the National Center for Bioethics and Research in Healthcare at Tuskegee University. Did You Wash Your Hands? is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary, but when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate and thanks.